Hello, and welcome back to Stories from the Ashes, where we pontificate on good books and the stories that define and refine us. I'm Amber, and I'm here with Amanda and artist extraordinaire Jamin Still, who's also an author. So thank you for being with us today, Jamin. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, we try to start these conversations off by getting to know our guests a little bit, and the best way to do that is through your favorite books. So what are three books that have been highly influential or are just in general your favorites? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, as I was thinking about it, I, uh, I tried to pick some different types of books that affected me at different ages. So the first one is Chris Van Alsberg. He is, I'm sure you know, um, the kind of illustrator he is. I'm just holding this up. This is the uh, the Garden of Abdul Ghazazi. His art is just so um, dreamy. He does a lot of mm -hmm. uh, graphite work, and it's really soft, and it's really uh, magical. And the, the story's okay. The story's okay, but it's the drawings that, as a kid, really drew me in. Yeah. Um, and I, as I was thinking about the question, I think that ends up being a theme, um, how I feel when I either mm -hmm. look at it or read it. The second one is the silver crown that I read as a kid. And I read this when I lived in England, my dad was military. And so I was in uh, school over there and I remember starting the book. And I think I was maybe 11 or 12. And there was just such a uh, mystery in reading and excitement. Again, there, there were elements of it that just really stuck in my memory. Mm -hmm. I never finished the book until a couple of years ago. I ordered it to say, I wonder whatever happened with that girl with the crown. Who's the author? And the author on that is Robert O'Brien, Robert C. O'Brien. And again, I, I bought it and I read it and I was like, no, oh, that was okay. But man, as a kid, the, mm -hmm. the memories that kind of lodged in my mind just from a, some of the imagery and yeah. some of, mm -hmm. I think the cover of which it wasn't this, it was an English yeah. version, <laughs> um, just really stuck with me and, and shaped me. And then also Sherlock Holmes mysteries from when I was a kid, the feeling of Sherlock Holmes Victorian London kind of gritty. Yeah. There's something when you're a kid that is just really uh it's kind of romantic in in the mm -hmm. traditional sense of the word not the modern sense that really stuck with me and still sticks with me when I think about writing like creating setting, creating uh characters um stuff like that. So yeah, Sherlock Holmes uh really influential on on me as a kid too. So most of these were when I was a kid, but that's yeah, kind yeah. of influenced me on into adulthood as well. Nice. In our Facebook group, one of the most repeated questions that we get is generally, my kid is this age, can they read Sherlock? And I think it's really funny because generally the response that everyone gives is, you know, yeah, it's, it's fine because it, it's usually like 11 and up. It's like, it's fine. There's a lot of drug use, but it'll probably go over their head. <laughs> and that's how it was for me. Like, I didn't really know what heating a spoon was representing. And so I was just exactly. like, oh, yeah, he's like, got some weird English British habits making tea or something over there. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I loved Sherlock Holmes as a kid, too. And 
and my my daughter really enjoys it as well. I love mysteries. I did a lot of Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie. Mm, yeah. So I'm I'm excited to get my Agatha Christie's out of storage with this whole moving in process because while we were displaced, I found one of those sets that's newer that has all the like brightly cover- colored uh, dust jackets for the spines. Mm-hmm. It's so visually appealing. So I'm excited to get them unpacked so that my oldest can start jumping into those. I know she's really going to love Agatha. So you have the privilege of being an author and an illustrator. And first of all, do you have a, do you have a preference? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a loaded question. Cause I think there's a third category too, which mm-hmm. only comes if you do both, which yeah. is, I don't even know the label for it. It's just painter because mm-hmm. with writing, you're writing with illustrating, you're working from a text, trying to stay faithful or supplement that text in a way that enhances the text. Personally, I really like to paint and allow the the painting to kind of go where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it'll be in the last hour or so that the painting takes a turn. There's an element added that really makes it work. And I found that you can only really do that if you just let it do what it's going to do. And so that's that's how I prefer to work, do a painting let it develop and maybe change at the last minute and then write a story from that. And so I don't think that's really either. Um, yeah. But that's how my creativity really gets triggered um, as I'm in in the painting process. Um, that was one of the questions I was going to have for you, actually, because your book here, Tales of Hiberia, The Awakening, uh-huh. which is gorgeous. I know a lot of these paintings I've seen from you over the years, and yeah. it it had me wondering which came first, like chicken or the egg. Like, did these, did you already have the story that went with that painting when you made the painting or did the story come next after the painting to inspire it? Especially like the guardians right here yeah. with, the, with the sea snake going through the water and the little boat craft on top of it. Did I you, would say did most, you, like, most of them happen? are imagery. Yeah, yeah. Imagery first where, I will start to paint and not even really have an idea of where the painting is always going to go. And then as I'm painting, the beginnings of a story come. And and really, the next step, which was to write down the beginnings of a story, came about because I travel and do art shows. And I thought it'd be really cool on the tag that shows the the title and the price to have like on the back, the beginning of the story. So I'll have like two or three lines Mm -hmm. that I've come up with that for whoever's looking at the piece or decides to buy it, it kind of triggers this uh, idea of, of what's going on in my mind. So I would, I would do a painting like, like that one with the sea snake, the, the guardians. And as I'm finishing it up, I'm thinking what, what is going on here? What are the characters here? What, what's the situation? And and so I'll start that. I'll write it down. And sometimes that becomes the full-blown story. Sometimes I go back and say that that doesn't really work and I change it. But usually that's the the seed. And so with this book, it was, I'd been planning to do it for, for years, 
but it's, I really buckled down and started doing it as soon as COVID started because all my shows canceled. Mm. And so I had written a lot of the stories and it was at that point that I was like, I want these stories to reflect the painting, but that I want them to be related to one another as well. And so that took a bit more work, but yeah, it all started mm -hmm. with, with the imagery. Um, I would say probably on 80% of them. So for Wishes of the Fish King, mm -hmm. that was written by someone else, did you, was the story already written and then you illustrated the story or yep. was it the other way around? It was, that was, uh, Doug McKelvey had written that, he'd actually written it about 18 years before when his kids were little. And um, we met and he said, I really like your style and I think uh, it'd be cool if if you illustrated that. And this was before I had done a whole lot of illustration. I'd done my own mm -hmm. first picture book. And so we sat down and did it. And it was the, the manuscript was finished. It was it was complete. Mm -hmm. And that's not impossible. It's just a different it's a different animal. It's it's a different yeah. um, process altogether. And I don't I don't not like it. It's just the way I naturally work is mm -hmm. is doing imagery first. But um, illustration, honestly, to answer your initial question, which do I like best? I like them all at different times because they yeah. they call on uh, different creative muscles, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's really exciting to to change it up, mix it up, depending on the mood, the time of year, all that. And so, yeah, we worked on that one together. Doug and I worked on that two uh, together for about four or five months, um, going back and forth. I would give him sketches. He would give me his feedback. We would have a lot of conversations. I would sneak stuff in. Um, sometimes he caught it. Sometimes he didn't. Um, what did you sneak in? There's a lot of um, Easter eggs in Wishes of the Fish King. My kids yeah. loved finding all the Easter eggs. We agreed to hide the crowns. Um, mm -hmm. There's some other hidden stuff that I don't. I don't even think I've told him at this point. So um, there's a green just, ember. There's a green ember in it, right? Yeah. I, I think so. Um, on the wall of the nursery, in the, in the library, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look for that. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's there's some different things in there uh, that I I can't quite share all of them because that would maybe spoil. <laughs> no, that I mean yeah. that's that's one of the one of the I don't really know how to say it. The uh, with illustration, you, you can really get in and uh, and and make it fun in a lot of different ways besides just illustrating the. Uh, the manuscript itself. And, and I really enjoy that, that aspect of it quite a bit. You have a very distinctive style. When did you land there? Well, by style, do you mean the appearance of, of the work? Yeah, the uh, way that there's like, it almost looks practice. like there's layering in it and mm. it has so much small detail and mm -hmm. the just there's everything... The Everything looks like textured and alive and layered, yeah, and, it and it's just like right, not life, like yes, full of life, yeah, full yeah. of life, full of fantasy. Like you feel like you're there, you feel like you're peering through the trees with the person. It really feels sure. like almost interactive. Um, I think there's a couple answers to that question. Um, there was some intentionality and there was some lack of skill, which is kind of funny and I, I probably shouldn't tip my hand, but I'll, I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> so when I, I went to school for, um, 
for painting. I did oil painting in college. And I really don't like, I, I work in acrylics now. I never really picked up oil. And so in, in that process of trying to work with oil, there was, there was a lot of experimenting that didn't work because it was a medium that I wasn't very good at. And there was um, a lot of reusing of the same canvases because I was so bad mm. um, and I didn't want to keep them. And so there was this one point where I was painting over this really dark area and the way the paint of the top layer worked with the background created this layered, probably what you're referring to as the layered effect that I really liked and hadn't, mm -hmm. hadn't created before or used before. So that was accidental. And then coupled with that, I was, I was trying to become really good at creating smooth gradations with acrylic, which mm -hmm. without getting too technical, it dries really quick and it's really hard to do that. And so unless you mix a bunch of different paint, um, mm -hmm. it can be a challenge. And so say for a, a sky, for example, if I'm trying to mix it and it doesn't create a nice gradient, it can be blotchy. And so mm -hmm. I decided to embrace that and outline those blotches so that it looked intentional. Mm -hmm. And so at first it was like, I'm just going to own this or see what it does. And then I really mm -hmm. liked how that, how that turned out. And so mm -hmm. I, I kind of embrace that now where it's, I do these patches and either outline or kind of ac accentuate the, uh, the differences there. And it's, I would say for the past 12 years, that's been about consistent um, with what I'm, with what I'm doing now. So I, I think it's a combination of, so th that's the style piece, but also what mm -hmm. I'm trying to communicate with what I do that informs it as well. I think the world is, is really broken and yet beautiful. Yes. And mm -hmm. I think how I paint, I I'm trying to reflect that as well. And so yeah. there is a lot of, there's like a, a jigsaw puzzly appearance to a lot of my images. And mm -hmm. so that's intentional choice to based on, I guess, what I'm trying to communicate, if that makes sense. So. Yeah. Well, you're succeeding. So I, I own some of your originals and then I also have prints from Kickstarter. So I have a lot of the images from the Wishes of the Fish King framed. I think I have 10 pieces of your art around my house. I kind of seem a little obsessed because I am, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so having seen originals, you can tell that it's all mm -hmm. acrylics, but when you're looking at your prints, mm -hmm. it looks like mixed media. It looks like there's some acrylic and oils and maybe some watercolor here and there in just the, mm -hmm. because you do such an expert job at blending in a way that I don't see very often in acrylics. A lot of the picture books these days, you can tell that some of it's digital just to get the effect that they want. And it almost like, I know that yours aren't digital, but it's like, how, how do you manage to get all these different effects in one single image? And especially your maps look like they have mm. a lot of watercolor in them. Do they, or well, are your maps yeah. also just acrylic? No, the maps aren't acrylic at all. They are watercolor. And then they were digitally enhanced as well. And so what, what is actually 
the the painting like the the map itself that you can see mm -hmm. is watercolor and colored pencil and then yes. over that like the texture of the parchment um i scanned and kind of laid in in photoshop uh, but that's the exception that the maps right. and like the pencil sketches with the parchment background are the mm -hmm. only ones that are that are digitally enhanced i guess yeah um but but to answer your question about the different effects the washes or the thinly applied uh, paint, that's just cheap paint. So <laughs> you can buy, um, <laughs> if you're familiar with painting at all, when you, when you buy a bottle, there's like a scale usually on the back for the opacity. Mm -hmm. And so most painters want a really opaque, and that means you can't see through it, mm -hmm. uh, tube mm -hmm. of paint so that you can just put on one or two layers and you're done. But cheaper paint just has less pigment, so it's less opaque, but you'd have to layer it on unless you want it to be clear. And so I, I have lots right. of tubes for blues and greens, for example, that when applied thinly end up showing through what's behind it. And I like that. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's part of their design, um, yeah. but you know, <laughs> it's, it's nice to, to utilize what's out there for sure. Yeah, definitely. A few years ago, I I don't remember who it was for. Was it for SD Smith? You did a a prompt for kids to write stories to, and it was the the boat with the big peacock head. Yes, that was I think Story Warren. Um, yeah, Story Warren stand site. Was and I I gave I think that was an image I had done already, but I was talking with. Man, I don't know. I think it was James Whitmer who's who was running it at the time, and I, I said, "Hey, I've got a bunch of images here. Uh, will that be helpful um, for you guys?" And I remember that particular assignment, I guess, or article. Like, there was a lot of great feedback because kids mostly, but I think some adults too, um, use that as a prompt to write, and that's that's yeah. super exciting. I think. Yeah, that was really fun. My daughters both did it, and. I think that got them really excited about their writing ability because it gave them a focused point of entry. Like mm -hmm. this is, this is where we're coming into the story and I feel like they just haven't stopped writing since. So thank you very much for participating in, in that project. It was really beneficial here in our home. And I think that was, that was towards the beginning of us starting to see your work around different places and so how long ago was it that you wrote Ellen and the Winter Wolves? So that was book. in 2015, I think, 2014, 2015, right when I was going uh, full-time for the first time. And that started with images. It started with three images. And then I wrote the story and filled in the remaining 20-ish. I'm not, I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. how many. So that was my first stab at a story. And I think upon reflection, it was before I had children and uh, reading it to my kids now, it's it's a doozy. It's about 20 minutes long. The older <laughs> one can handle it, but it, it did definitely didn't come from experience of reading to a kid and uh, dealing with real life attention spans. That's for sure. Um, that's funny. So we, would you recommend uh, it for older kids then? Or So what I've, what I've found with that book I think it's format. It's landscape oriented. It's mm -hmm. format communicates that it's for younger kids, but it's content. Oh, I don't know about you that. 
You don't so think not, so? not here. Picture books are for anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We love picture books. <laughs> okay, okay. We are firm well, believers that picture books that have more than two words per page everybody. are for everybody. <laughs> well, this monster is about 3,000 words. So, and I had, so, I had several people saying it's too big, but then some no. said, we appreciate your uh, use of uncommon words. And because um, I, I don't pull back, I, I'm just, I'm writing for me essentially mm-hmm. and, and for little Jamin, you know, 10 year old Jamin. I, to answer your question, I think the age would be six, seven, eight and up. I've heard people recently complain about how modern picture books have gotten too short. So mm-hmm. well, here I, I, am. Here I am ready to, I, I guess, solve that problem. This is there. your time. <laughs> we, we have a, a literary database on our website mm-hmm. and we don't do reading levels. We do interest levels for recommendations mm-hmm. because we think that so many kids are either delayed readers or advanced readers. And really you're looking at content. Is this content something that would hold the interest of my child? And then we do sample pages so people can look at the reading level themselves and assess if their kids can read it. But we have a special tag for picture books like yours and it's verbose picture books. So (laughs) because parents want to know, is this something that I can read to my kid in five to 10 minutes at bedtime? Or are we going to be hanging out on the couch for a while in front of the fire with popcorn? (laughs) So (laughs) that's so great. We just just like to let people know what's coming. (laughs) So with, with Tales of Hibaria, I want to, am I saying that right? Hibaria? Hibaria. Hibaria. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I read it. I didn't. You're good. You're good. I I brought that on myself. (laughs) So Tales of Hibaria, The Awakening. I really enjoyed this for so many reasons. And Inara, who's 15, also read it and really enjoyed it. So it's a collection of each chapter is a short story in the world. And there's a timeline. So you see as time is progressing, these different stories are taking place. And so I was, I would have been nervous going into this if you had not sent us some of the short stories to beta Mm -hmm. test before you did your Kickstarter, because I typically do not enjoy short stories because I want to know more. I want the rest of the story. And that was Inara's response. She came upstairs and she's like, I finished the book. And I was like, how did you like it? And she's like, well, it was really good, but I want to know when he's going to write the rest of it because there better be more (laughs) because this just makes me want to know the rest of the story. So I was reading it again the last couple days. And I think that what I really like is short stories. Typically for me, it's a short story and then you're done. But this is a bunch of short stories in the same time and place. And so they build on each other. It's almost like you have this aerial view and you're coming into this place and you're hearing what's happening for different people as they're moving along. But I definitely, it needs more, Jamin. (laughs) We need the next book. Can I I tell you... I tell you how this project even started? Yes, please uh, do. So I've been working on a novel for about, I would say, seven years. And because I travel and do shows March through October, that makes it really hard to work on a mm-hmm. novel because I need blocks of time, not just each day, but I need blocks of time 
you know, the, the weekend can be in there, but if I'm gone for five days, man, I'm shot. And, and so like, mm-hmm. it takes another day to get back into, okay, where was I? What's going on with these characters? Yeah. And so I was getting very discouraged with the progress of the novel. And so I started to brainstorm, I want to write. How do I keep writing in a way that I can get something done and, mm-hmm. and scratch the itch for this creative aspect of my life? And so I settled on the short story because they're way easier to get into and out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to a show, I come back, there's not that much to remember. And so mm-hmm. what I started doing uh, two, let's see, well, two years ago was the start of the pandemic. All, yeah, four or five years ago, I guess. When I would go to a show, I would have the current short story I was working on. I would make a list of things I needed to figure out that I could do while being interrupted constantly by people buying art. And then I would have have that dedicated notebook. And then I would come home and kind of get all that into the story and, uh, and kind of chip away at that in a, in a more, just a more reasonable way. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the short stories came from, but I wanted to, I didn't want to abandon the novel. I wanted to set up the novel. And so Mm -hmm. that's essentially what I, what I did with that. And then when the, but when the pandemic came, it allowed me to actually finish and lay out the book and do all that. And so the novel that I have been writing on and I'm, I'm finishing up right now is the jumping off point where those stories end. And it is, the beginning of the weaving together of all those stories. There are three characters from the short stories that are in the Which first characters. What's what's that? Which characters? Well, I can't tell you that. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, really, I'm, I'm partway through the, I'm partway through the tales of Hibari- Hibari- uh-huh. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And the one with a hot air balloon. It's called the airship in the story. That one I like can't get out of my mind. So I'm hoping that she's in. She's not in the first one, man. I I hate to disappoint you right away. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so Hart from uh, the River Road is in it. Hildy makes an appearance at the end, and then one other character that I'm 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 not going to reveal at this point. Um, okay. But it's, keep your it's, secrets. But it's. <laughs> That you mentioned um, S.D. Smith, Sam's uh, little books that he puts out, mm-hmm. because as I've wrestled with how to weave these stories together, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult in my mind to do that as novels, because I've, I've got three novels mm-hmm. planned for the whole story arc. And I know where these characters go, but they might need those mini stories interspersed the novellas are so powerful mm-hmm. in telling yeah. that extra story that you want because sam does it and then we are really enjoying the skyward series from brandon sanderson and he's been doing mm-hmm. that he's not even writing the novellas himself i don't know if you have followed that at all he is Farm a ghostwriter, so he's he's yeah. telling her what to write and then she's you know filling it in and they're just these little short things but he has more story to tell than that man could possibly ever get out of himself as Absolutely. His last Kickstarter showed everyone. Did you see that? I did. That he was raised that was millions. Mind-blowing. Because I, I, I saw it, it at the really beginning. Was. His goal seemed absurd. And then what he reached yeah. was 
Was it in, in the 30 millions or it, it was it, like, so high. Broke it was- every Kickstarter record ever set. And it was so funny watching that initial video. I had Inara watch it because she's, um, she's 40 chapters into her second book in her series that she's writing. And oh, yeah? she just, she's going, that girl is head down. I told her that I wouldn't, um, I, so it took her years to write this because she kept rewriting it, which is great. I mean, she was developing, she's young still, her style was changing, her vocabulary was changing, her world building was expanding because they're science fiction. She was realizing mm-hmm. that she can't call money dollars in space, you know, things like that. And so space dollars. as she's right, right, space dollars. So as she's doing all of this, she gets done with her first book and I'm like, this is fantastic. I'm so happy for you. Yes, I will edit it for you. And it's Jamin. I am not just saying this because I'm her mother. It is good. It is a good book. This girl has the soul of a storyteller. And so I was like, I will send this to a few small publishers. Otherwise we'll publish it ourselves. But I was like, but I'm not going to waste all of our time by shopping around a book that you are going to give up and not write the rest of the series. So mm-hmm. you need to at least have like diligently started on your right. second book. So I tell her this the day she gives me the end of book one. By the end of the week, she's done with chapter 10. She's like, I'm doing this. It's getting done. And she has ADHD. So you never know when the spark is going to go out on a special interest, you know, because <laughs> she has ADHD right. and autism. And so it's like, is this going to stick? Is she going to get to the end of book, you know, three chapters of book two and be like, eh, I'm not so interested in this story. I'm going to tell a new story. So I've been just so proud of her, how she's like diligent. She's getting it done. She's like, I'm going to be done with this book and then I'm going to finish book three. And I think she might get two books out of herself this year at the speed she's going. She, this this is incredible. her like full time right. summer project. She's probably writing for four or five hours a day right now. Man, it's that's so great. crazy. She's also getting out of a lot of chores because I feel like I can't be asking her to do chores if it's getting in the way of her art, you know, <laughs> probably motivates her even more. <laughs> Man, that's, that's so great that she's got a the desire, but but be the, the staying power so far. That can be so hard because the, the difference between your initial idea and the execution, mm-hmm. there's a lot of despair in between that. And so it seems yeah. like she's somehow sidestepping that, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this to go back to, I think the idea of novellas is an excellent one to be able to tell more of your story on yeah. non-main characters or side events that are happening. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I I feel like um, there are so many of those that I have lined up in my mind. I, mm-hmm. I just wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to, mm-hmm. to kind of commit to each and every one because... Maybe you need to go straighter too. <laughs> <laughs> or not, because that just doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound no. authentic to me. I know. But that story that Amanda was talking about in this book, mm-hmm. and R and I were talking about it last night. What did you say the title of that chapter? Sarah was? Escapes oh, the no. Night, the one with the balloon? Yes. <laughs> yeah. her escape, she, Sarah Escapes the Night. And R and I were talking about this on our walk last night, and we were, because I started I just want everyone to know, in case you struggle with this, I don't like doing anything, especially with ADHD, 
everything feels like a priority. And so self-care does not necessarily feel like the most pressing matter. And so I made a deal with my therapist that I was going to try to go to bed earlier and I was going to start taking a walk every day for my stupid mental health. And so I have, I have taken a walk eight days in a row now, you guys, that is some staying power. I just want to say, so <laughs> we, we were on our walk last night and we go at night because I don't like, I can't handle weather, bad weather, like humidity in Iowa is soul sucking. Yes. So we go after dark, right before the the lower level crew go to bed. So we get to have these great conversations though, right? Like we get to recap the day and all of this. We're not really the eat around the table sort of family. So this is our, our table time is we just all go and have this, this walk and talk. So Inar and I were talking about that story and we were specifically having the conversation about the fact that a book and a story has two different relationships. Well, three different relationships. It has the relationship to itself and the rest of the book. And then it has the relationship to the author and what the author's intent was. And then it has the relationship to the reader and the reader's interpretation. And the author has brought their life experiences and their worldviews and all of that into it. And then the reader is bringing their life experience and their worldviews and their ideas into the story. And so we were talking about that story and how it really feels like this beautiful representation of depression to me mm. because she's in the light she's having a great day she just got done with the sale she's been successful mm. she's bringing her success home to her family and then the darkness rolls in and there's no escaping it there's no warning <laughs> and it just mm -hmm. it comes and it rolls over her and I could see it rolling over her because I had this beautiful experience at Lake Michigan my sister used to have a lake house. And so we were there and we pulled into the driveway and I went straight back to the deck. And I'm like, I think there's fog rolling in you guys, like way across Lake Michigan. And they're all like, no, no. And they all go inside, losers. So they completely miss <laughs> the experience of the fog rolling in. And as land lovers, mm -hmm. like we don't get to see and experience that the way people on lakes or on the coast too, but it's incredible. And it just mm. like, it's mm -hmm. scary almost. It just comes and there's darkness. Like you cannot see the water anymore. You cannot see Chicago's lights anymore. You can't see boats, nothing. It's like, if you are on the water, mm -hmm. you're stuck there unless you can find your way home somehow because you're in darkness. And so mm -hmm. I felt that as she's covered in this darkness and she's despairing. And then there's just this tiny touch of light in that firefly, but that's all she mm -hmm. needs. That's all she mm -hmm. needs to hold on to. And, and I loved how you talk about like how much, how you describe the focus that she has and the strength that it's taking to like lift her, you know, to pull the ropes, to lift the ship up and down as she's trusting this little light. And so often when you're in a depression, you're trusting that little light of knowledge that it will get better. Mm -hmm. Even though it doesn't feel like it's better, <laughs> even though everything in you is telling you this is only getting worse, this is never going to end. Often, if you have that little touch of hope that says it got better before or, you know, nobody else is dying from this experience. So clearly my my um, oh, what is it like on the airplane? All of your things are reading wrong. Oh, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you thank you. My instruments are lying to me as to what's up and what's down right here. And I'm just trusting that I'm going to come out on the other side of this. 
but she just like follows this little piece of light and she gets through it and it rolls away and she's able to just like go and that's and ours like are you saying you think that's what he was writing? I was like, no, I seriously doubt that's what he was writing. But that's what I was feeling when I was reading it. Yeah, I was feeling too. I mean, I wouldn't really say depression. I was just thinking hardships or mm-hmm. whatever. But that's kind of where I was going too in my mind. So where were you going in your mind, Jamin? <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a really great and interesting question because at shows I end up having the best conversations with therapists. Like this has happened mm-hmm. five or six times where they <laughs> either look at the art or, you know, they've read the books and we ended up talking, we end up talking and that's not specifically the direction I was coming from, but I think in a, in an untrained, maybe more intuitive way, that's something I'm very interested in. Like I, I'm very yeah. interested in not specifically depression, but the inner life, you know, like what, what mm-hmm. I, what I write about. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes I'm reflecting on what happened in that situation as a kid. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm thinking about a memory or I, I think about maybe even not myself, but I look at my own kids and, and I'm guessing as to what's going on with them. And it's always been a fascinating world, the interior life, how we, how we think, how we perceive, how we respond. And mm-hmm. I've just always been drawn to that. And so I want to write about that and, and not just write about it, but write about it in an honest way, because I think Mm -hmm. as a, as a kid and even as an adult, I've always really pushed back and been almost resentful towards really pat answers or Mm -hmm. really empty kind of comforting answers of Mm -hmm. everything's going to be okay. Or everything happens for a reason or, or whatever, whatever form that takes which I think yeah. often is presented as, I don't know what else to say and I want to comfort you. I don't want to scare you. And so the motive I think is maybe fine, but I was never satisfied with that. And so to delve into those questions now that I'm an adult, I think has given me an opportunity to not really answer those questions. Cause I mean, that's the problem. You can't just mm-hmm. package an answer and say, well, I did it. But to address right. that in a way that's honest and in a, in a way that I feel like reflects maybe not everyone's experience, but reality as, mm-hmm. as I think it is. And so, yeah, with that one, I forget. Is that the one where she remembers going to sleep next to a tree? Mm-mm. No. Maybe that's a different story. But in, in, in the different stories, I pull memories into it and then try to compare it to experiences that that they've had as they self kind of analyze as they're just trying to make sense of it without it being, as I said earlier, pat or, or, or really canned or packaged. And so you strike a line that, I mean, you're really walking a tightrope because you don't want to just say, well, who knows? Um, Mm -hmm. There's no conclusion here, but you don't want to put a bow on it either. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's important to strike a balance or I, I attempted to in, in those stories. Uh, I think about that one. I think about the one with uh, the river road where the boy is, uh, his family dies uh, and he goes into the wood to grieve essentially. And um, mm-hmm. there, there's no easy answer for grief. There's no easy answer for mm-hmm. this is how you handle something monstrous like this. Um, yeah. And so acknowledging 
we shouldn't straight, you know, keep away from that because it's a difficult thing to talk about. Like, heck no. I mean, that we should engage in that, mm-hmm. even if it's slightly dissatisfying in how we conclude. And so I, I guess, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's what I'm trying to wrestle with, with a lot of those yeah. stories. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. What you said about how when people say those things, like, you know, everything happens for a reason and that they're well-meaning. I used to believe that. (laughs) And the more well-meaning people, well-meaning people that I have come across, the less I think that they're actually well-meaning and the more I think they're selfish. Because Mm. I think that when people say things like that, it's really armor to not have to feel your feelings. Like Mm. they are protecting themselves from the level of emotion that you are going through. And so they're just giving some trite response to have said something to look like they were engaging with you, but not actually engaging with you. If we look at Jesus, for the example, he never gave trite responses. Bible says Jesus wept (laughs) like he he even knew their grief was going to turn to rejoicing when their brother came back to life. But he sat with them and wept. He met them where they were at in their suffering. And so I think that that's what we really need to do is meet people in their suffering, in their grief, in their trauma, even if it's just sitting with them, even if it's just Mm -hmm. crying with them and just supporting them in that way. And I felt that I saw a lot of that happening in these stories and how many of the children never went alone, that they had Mm -hmm. a sibling who came alongside them and went with them, even against their own personal, (laughs) you know, their personal desires or their own fears. They stood up and faced those in order to not send the other person alone. And in the story with the, little boy who doesn't speak the orphan who doesn't speak and he's he goes into the tower with the little girl who has gone with him even though she thinks his mission is a failure even though she thinks the tower will consume both of them and then within the tower once she realizes what has gone wrong for the other children who've gone before she stays Mm -hmm. with him so that when it goes wrong it will go wrong for them together And she thinks he's there for selfish reasons. She thinks he's there to get Mm -hmm. his voice back, yet she still is walking alongside him. And I think that that's what we're called to, is to walk alongside each other and to Mm -hmm. not leave each other to our despair or to our suffering alone. And Mm -hmm. so I, I loved all of the positive sibling relationships and the positive friendships where people just have that loyalty and people do hard things when they have to take the the star out of the lighthouse and go into the darkness. And, and I really liked that imagery as well of the constellations changing and how that mm-hmm. makes everyone lose their bearings. And it's true. And I feel like the world around us, especially through COVID and while you were writing this and everything, the world felt like it was losing its <laughs> bearings and up wasn't up and things that we could trust before we couldn't trust anymore. And things of that nature. And so I really like that. But I would like for you to talk about your shooting stars, because that is something that you put in your art that I absolutely love. Man, the ones that are shooting up or down? Because I've Yes, got you're shooting up ones, the ones that you have shooting up. I'm trying to remember the poem. It's not even a poem. It's like a couplet, maybe. If stars falling down mean the end of all things, then stars falling up mark the start. So that was a a, a, a couple lines that I wrote. 
I don't even remember. This was about 15 or 20 years ago. It might've been for someone's wedding. And I, and I, I did a little drawing, a little doodle for them for their wedding. And I guess what that means, um, to me, you know, we, we think of falling stars as one of the symbols or somewhat symbolic of the end of end of the world or end of things. And, um, so I just turned it on its head and, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, st- stars, as you know, just from, from the, the stories are interesting and fascinating and very symbolic, you know, in, in ways I don't even know that I think mm-hmm. their vastness, not physically, but in their meaning is just such mm-hmm. a draw to me because kind of like a gem, every time you turn it, there's, oh yeah, it could mean that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it touches on that. I think it touches on this idea that there are things that so many people view in a certain way that when viewed in a different way can have a completely different meaning or, or the not even a different or opposite meaning, but whatever the the richer word of opposite is the the unmeaning yeah. <laughs> right Instead of end of everything mm-hmm. the beginning of something yeah i think that's going to be my answer to that even if it doesn't always have direct meaning in that painting uh that i do mm-hmm. i want to put i mean i i do so much for me i just i put it in there for me um even mm-hmm. if the person who buys it doesn't necessarily know that um i do it for me because half the time when i'm painting it's i think it's i think it's probably therapy you know so is that why the constellations play such a theme in the tales of habaria i i think so i i think yeah that that mystery again i think dealing with not wanting to write things with pat answers or really easy answers. I think I probably think about those characters in that same way too. Um, there, there's many of them. Uh, it's, it's not, I'm not writing allegory, you know, they're not mm-hmm. God, they're not perfect, yeah. but right. I do, which, you know, probably gets me in trouble with some people because they want that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, they do in some ways represent, um, wisdom and and mm-hmm. aid mm-hmm. obviously and i think i i think the mystery that those things are often wrapped in the stars provide that i guess mm-hmm. um, they're really a good medium for for kind of dealing with with those kinds of topics i guess so yeah yeah how long ago did you start the world building for habaria wow that is a hard question because like your daughter rewriting her book over and over. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I, th- I think 1.0 was in 2004, 2004. I was still in school in, in college. I did a show with my buddy. He, he did uh, watercolor and drawings and I did acrylic paintings. And what we decided to do was I would create a bunch of imagery and he would do some drawings, but then he would do some journal entries. And the idea mm-hmm. was that this guy was stuck on this island and we would create a loose framework that viewers of the show could come in and either 
kind of come to their own conclusions from, or just the beginning of a story that would kind of mm-hmm. stir the imagination. And from that, I wrote a novel that was very bad, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was really the first foray into this world. It wasn't called Habari at the time, but so much has been lifted from that, that I think, I think it's probably right to say that that was the, the beginning of it. So man, what is that? 18 years ago? 18-ish years yeah. ago now. So started a long time ago. Okay. I, man, my head is so full and has been so full of these things for about half of my life. It's it's good to finally get some stuff down on paper because it's felt yeah. very crowded up there. So I can it, imagine. Is it like a relief? <laughs> There's more space in your head once you get some of it down? I think so. I think that... I mean, that's where the map came from. I had vague ideas, but I was having a, mm. a really slow show in Denver one year. And I was, I just, I got out this paper and I said, I'm going to build this map so I can know where all these paintings go. And so mm-hmm. I did that. And suddenly I just felt so much more calm and so much mm. less cluttered. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's an organizing technique. I didn't even know it would be, but that kind of happened. So now when I start a painting, I kind of look at the map. It's right next to my desk. And I say, okay, this is probably where that goes. And for whatever reason, that just, man, that just helps a lot. I don't understand yeah. how I work. I, just, I know how to get around. It, it, it almost sounds like it's a form of like creativity anxiety where you're carrying all this stuff and it creates this like nervous energy and it stresses you out and you don't even realize how much it's stressing you out until you get it out of yourself. And then you're like, Ugh, what a relief. I didn't even know that was bothering I, me, but now it's done. I think it's a combination of that, but also just knowing what to do with it. Because mm-hmm. if I have all these unrelated stories in my mind and no hope of ever getting them down, it feels like mm-hmm. potentially just, a loss, like an enormous loss. Mm-hmm. And so even though right. I don't foresee that I will get them all down, maybe I will, but every time I paint, <laughs> I come up with another one. So I doubt it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the fact that I've kind of begun a system or have this map that I can plug things into, and I have begun to actually write the stories that go with them. It, yeah, it's like a release valve for that. The pressure of this has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Along with writing your own books and then illustrating new books like The Wishes of the Fish King, you also mm-hmm. have undertaken doing jacket art and mm-hmm. interior illustrations, I believe, for reprints of books. Since sometimes when books are reprinted, you have mm-hmm. the author rights, but not the illustrator rights. So I know that you did the cover, which is gorgeous, for My Uncle the Avion for Purple House Press. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. you read that book before? I hadn't, but I was talking to Jill. I, I believe it's Jill. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Who runs Purple House. And she sent me the the manuscript. And I had taken French in uh, elementary school. I was in England at the time where they start language when you're uh, seven, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I took French as a kid. And so it wasn't, it, it was great because I was, it was pulling all that back. And so I was reading mm-hmm. through it, having a great time. It didn't even feel like an assignment. And so that was the first time I had read it. And then we had some conversations about the cover, which, so illustration, as opposed to doing my own thing, mm-hmm. both the writing and the, and the painting is, is different and really fun. It's a, it's a different muscle. Uh, 
And so I gathered a bunch of things that I wanted to communicate that I didn't know whether they were important to her, but I thought these, these are Mm -hmm. cool things that we can incorporate into the cover. What do you think about that? And it was just, it was a great, and it usually is when I, when I do work with, with publishers, I think there's, there's a great uh, back and forth or there can be if, if my Mm -hmm. ideas are any good. Oh yeah. (laughs) Doing it that way actually covers this, even even if a lot of people don't pick it up. But if they do, mm-hmm. um, that, that's possible. And so I I love doing that. I love sitting down and saying, okay, what do we want to communicate here besides an image from the book? Which obviously, man, one of my pet peeves growing up is when the image is, doesn't even appear in the book, or 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 right. is or is inaccurate in really obvious ways. <laughs> and so yeah. that was exciting just to say, okay, this is going to be accurate to the book. And then also if I can incorporate um, some other elements too, that would be great. And so I really like that process as well. Yeah. It's, it's exciting to do. And it's exciting when, when the person you're working with is, is a, as excited about it as you are. So yeah, that's been yeah. a fun process. Too. Is that the only one you've done or have you done another I've one? Done- I think two, I think I've done four or five, um, okay. one for Purple House Press, one for a traditional publisher, a couple for the Rabbit Room. Although the ones from the Rabbit Room, you wouldn't recognize because they're pen and ink, which. So which ones did you do for the Rabbit Room? So they had uh, a couple Walt Longren books come out maybe mm-hmm. eight or nine years ago, uh, mm-hmm. books on writing. Um, one was on writing and one was, I think a memoir. And one of my problems with being creative is that I had to focus on painting, but they wanted, Mm -hmm. they wanted pen and ink. And I'm like, well, man, I used to do that. And I would love to do that. And I still can, I think here I did this and they're like, oh yeah, that that would work. Um, I wish I could do so many other things, but I I just got to focus on the painting, but it worked for those. And so I did, I did a couple of those and and then I did a traditional painting for, I think, Bethany House, one of their books that they put out. But I think with with the stuff that I've started working on with my own, I'm not like turning those down, but I'm not going out to seek them either. And so yeah. I feel like I've I've got my own work lined up mm-hmm. to the degree where, man, I just got to get this done. Um, every yeah. year goes by and I'm like, you didn't get done everything on your list that you wanted to get done. Um, <laughs> we make that happen this year. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with yeah. that. How yeah. did you transition to uh, being a professional artist, like full time? Wow. Uh, that's a question. Um, as in, how did I decide to, or what, what did that look like um, money wise? Like how, how does, how does one actually make a living? Cause there's a lot of different ways to ask that question. I think. I don't know. I mean, how did you always want to be a professional artist? And then was there, I'm assuming there was a time when you couldn't do that full time and then you were able to transition to doing that full time. That's a great question. I always did. When when I was little, I wanted to be an artist, but I thought that meant owning owning an art store. I, I, (laughs) I had very little understanding of, of what that meant. And I didn't, I didn't really grow up around anyone who mm-hmm. knew how to do that or so it was very out there. Maybe other people yeah. did that. And so it was in some ways it was a dream, but it was unattainable. So 
not not to the degree that I didn't go to school for painting. Man, I was a wreck as as a kid. Like I'm going to pursue art, but then not actually pursue art. I mean, that's essentially what I did. I, I pursued art, but then I was like, well, I can't actually make a living with this, so I'm going to do something else. And so I was I was working at Barnes and Noble for a while, trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I was I'm a very fearful person, and so mm. the art mystery, not really knowing anyone in that field and not really knowing how to get into it, it, it just terrified me. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just never do that and just wish I did. I ended up becoming a pastor at the church I still go to, a college pastor where I was doing sermons every week, running a ministry with you know eight or 10 small groups, uh, really something. And I, and I had a little bit of seminary, and that that was very important in my development. It was it was a it was the right thing to do at that time. I was I was kind of in that world at, at my church, and it made sense to a lot of people to kind of step into that role. But at the same time, it was very uncomfortable. But but I I, I said you know I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to just quit. And so I did it for six years, and in that time, I was also wrestling with the validity of art as an occupation because it mm -hmm. felt fun. It felt, um, mm -hmm. yeah, right. <laughs> Can't do things that are fun for a living. No, right. I mean, at all. There, there, I think there is a strain within, at, mm -hmm. at least within a lot of the churches that I've gone to that work isn't something necessarily to be enjoyed. If, if you, yeah. happen, if you happen to, it's okay, but really you need to be providing and maybe yeah. doing something that is really important important stuff. And mm -hmm. so being a pastor was great because like that was important and no one was going to argue that, that that was important. But um, <laughs> within this time, I'm still really wrestling with it's, it's when I go home and, and paint at night that I'm really feeling alive. Right. It's, yeah. it's when I go home and think about stories that I'm really, really excited and, and I don't know what to do with that tension. Right. So for, Several years, I was just wrestling with: Is this wrong to to want to pursue art? Is it mm -hmm. is it selfish? Is it is there something inherently um, self serving in it? And if it is, even if I like it, I'm not going to do it because I I, I want to do the right thing. And so I I think it was I read Os Guinness's The Call. Uh, he's like an Irish guy who talks about. I don't even remember, but I remember after I read the book, it was, it was, you know, there are really valid vocations like all over and it's not just mm -hmm. Christian work or whatever that is, is valid. And so there was the, there was the validity piece of it, but there was also the fear piece of, mm -hmm. okay, if it's valid, that's still a huge risk. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think I was, I was having to grapple with both of those things. And fortunately, both of those things were on a very similar trajectory where as I was figuring out, no, this is not just valid. It's kind of almost wrong to not pursue mm -hmm. this because this is how I'm made. This is, this is how I've been equipped. And in some ways I, I feel like it would be a waste to not. I think along with that was, um, which was ironically addressed by being a pastor. Like I'm terrified of speaking in public. Um, mm -hmm. and I had to do that every week. It, it was the worst, the first year doing that was the worst year of my life. I wanted to throw up 
every, mm-hmm. like before every time I got up. And so yeah. like, yeah, talk about terrible. But I really, I learned to deal with fear. And I think for me, what was behind that fear, like you just can't do this and realizing, okay, this is possible. You can do it. As I was figuring out that doing art is valid, I was also figuring out that fear doesn't have to be surrendered to. And so mm-hmm. it was it was really great that that those were tracking together. And then um and then that this guy came along who was perfect for my job. And I talked to the the head pastor, which I was a little nervous about because they had been paying for my seminary and kind of investing in me. And they're like, oh, that's great. A, that this guy is the perfect guy. And that's great that you are pursuing what we think is is really great um, and, and your skill set. And so I have a great relationship with my church still, um, unexpectedly, I think, through that whole transition. And so, yeah, I think it was back in 2014 that I made the switch. The nuts and bolts of it were the shows. I had a friend who was in a similar position. We had met in art school and he had gone full time about six months before me. And he said, we can kind of make a living doing these shows. And man, I'm, gl- I'm glad that I didn't know anything when I made that decision because <laughs> I would not have made that decision at the time. But I, I was just like, okay, we're going to do shows. Um, we're going to travel around, sell art. And it's going to work. And it kind of did. But then like I was in it. And so I found other ways to to, to bring in income, whether it's through mm-hmm. licensing or, or speaking or, you know, illustration work. Okay. And so and, and going to the rabbit room, that was the first year I went to Hutchmoot, which is their annual conference. And I met mm-hmm. a bunch of other artists who um, became really good friends. And then, I mean, resources, too. I don't want to say it crassly like I just view them right. as a resource but yeah. like mm-hmm. they're friends who connections been, yeah. yeah connections who know mm-hmm. kind of what they're doing and so there it was just I don't even know how it happened I tell you the story but like as I tell it it sounds absurd it sounds like really <laughs> but that's kind of how it happened and uh yeah. I'm so grateful that that's kind of how it how it transpired for sure another question that's kind of unrelated sure I see that you sell originals. Do you ever get in trouble with your wife for selling paintings that she really likes? Or do you make sure she has first dibs? Well, I, I think the biggest the the biggest trouble was when I was painting stuff for our house before I was doing this full time. Because the intent of the painting was to go on our wall. But then when I went mm-hmm. full time, I didn't have this giant backlog of work. So... As I'm like mm-hmm. lifting it off the wall, that's where it's like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, hey, you got to make money. Um, so that, <laughs> that that was the one point of uh, of tension, I think, right at the beginning. And that was painful for me, too, because I had painted it yeah. with the intent that it would be with us. But since then, she's got a great attitude. She She's like, oh, you can paint another one. Um, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm glad you have the confidence um, in, in my creative ability to continually come up with new stuff. Cause sometimes I worry that, you know, I'm, I'm out of gas and I'm never going to come up with anything again, but uh, hmm. no, she's great. And um, a lot of times I will, now that I make prints and stuff, like I'll hang prints on the wall 
Um, and so those don't have to leave and she gets mm -hmm. them. And now it's the kids that get really distressed when stuff moves. They're like, where did that one go? Oh my God. <laughs> you have a coffee table that I saw pictures of that was yeah. pretty cool. When, when, when we got married, my wife brought a glass covered coffee table to our marriage, it, three glass panels that were approximately 20 by 10 that we discussed several times that we should replace before we had kids because they would inevitably get broken. And, and we didn't, um, because <laughs> stuff came up and, mm -hmm. and then I think it was this year, Amber, that my four-year-old just jumped through one of them. He was jumping on the couch and put his elbow through one, shattered it and, um, got really mad when he got in trouble because he didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> so, um, then the, the idea all along had been to paint some kind of imagery to go in the place of the panels. And so I said, well, I guess it's time. So I did some stained glass kind of uh, imagery to put in there. We still have two glass panels, which is foolish because I don't learn, but I just don't have time to do <laughs> the other two at this point until I'm forced to. So, <laughs> yeah, so we have, we have this, the stained glass one in the middle. <laughs> It's really yeah, pretty. I, I do a lot of different things for sure. Yeah. Jack of all trades in the art world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I have a suggestion for okay. the Tales of Faria. So there's okay. 12 constellations and mm -hmm. there's 12 months in a year. Oh, the so calendar, right? Clearly there should be a calendar. Like why there is not already a calendar is beyond me. You want to know why? <laughs> Because every every November, I'm like, oh, I didn't do it. And that's that's pretty much it. Um, I'm like, okay, next year. And then it's suddenly November again. And um, yeah. so there, there's no like principled reason as to why I haven't done it. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's mostly complete forgetfulness and terrible business management. Pretty much. Yeah. So I guess this is your reminder. Maybe this is the, the year. Yep, it's the end of July. <laughs> this Let's be get the going. time that, that I need to have it, right? Okay. Oh, we'll see what I can do. <laughs> well, do you have any words of encouragement for kids or people that are wanting to be creative and feeling any fear about it? Oh, man. Um, well, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, I run into this. I, this makes me sad. When, when I'm at shows, I, I oftentimes run into kids who their parents say, look, you know, this guy does art just like you do art. And um, I think they're trying to encourage their kids, obviously. And um, I think more often than not, the kid gets really sad and they're like, well, I'm not that good. And I'm like, man, neither was I. And so a lot of times I'll have on my phone drawings from when I was a kid. And I'm like, look, look what I was doing. I wasn't very good. And so if there's not just a kid, but anyone who's in that place where they love to create, whether it's art or writing or music or whatever, just doing it over and over and over again. I mean, if that gives you life, don't, don't care that it's not mm -hmm. good. <laughs> don't care that it's not as good as a professional or your older brother or whatever just uh just do it and if and, and if that's where it ends that's where it ends that's great 
do it. But if you mm -hmm. want to do it, if you want to make a career out of it, there is a way to do that. And so like, just keep after it, just keep after it and find people who know what that next step is, which can be hard, right? I, I said, I knew no one as a kid growing up. And I know there's a lot of kids in that situation with the world as it is today with online stuff. I think there's just so many more avenues to reach out and to, to connect to those people. And I know a yeah. lot of people who are in my position who are responsive and who, because of our own experiences, are mm -hmm. really happy to, to share, share advice, share feedback. And so, yeah, I, I will do that. I will, I will talk to your kid. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I, I think I will. If, if they really have genuine <laughs> questions, like if, if suddenly there's like 50, I, I don't know if I can get to them all, but like, no, really, to, to be honest, like I would love to mm -hmm. help point a kid towards what a next step would be. Yeah, I would just say keep after it and, um, and don't, don't discount the slow process that, that life demands, you know, that, that's everything mm -hmm. um, and art is included. Yeah. None of us are born gifted, you know, we have to keep after it. So well, I think I mean, that's what I would say. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, we need, we need, oh man, yeah. art. We need good art. We mm -hmm. just need good art. And so I, I guess I would say that too. Like, don't think it's less valid because it's not math. Mm -hmm. Don't think it's less valid because it's not engineering. Those things are great. And we definitely, mm -hmm. we know that we need those. I think we don't know as much that we need art, but I'm hoping that yeah. we will as time goes on that we would see that art is as vital as, as those things. So, yeah, it was, it was fun last night. My husband is one of those math loving engineers, uh -huh. really math loving engineers and not artistic at all, but uh, false. He doesn't draw, but he Matt draw. sews, Matt sews all of sew. these like yes. Disney dresses, princess dresses for his daughters <laughs> and costumes yes. and all this. Cause he was a, a show choir kid, but yeah. Wow. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, different not, types of art. He doesn't draw. As far as drawing, painting, <laughs> yeah. whatever. But even he last night he was looking at our copy of Wishes of Vish King. Uh -huh. And even he last night was like coming alive, looking at the illustrations. Mm -hmm. So we all need art. And even if you are yeah. mathy and can't draw. Oh, absolutely. Lick. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I but, can't, I can barely do hangman like that's my level of being able to draw and even that it's like these body parts aren't really lined up where they go whereas my mom her gifting is copying she can look at something and copy uh -huh. it so she'll like sit in church and she'll have a little like hallmark card that has this like beautiful little mouse climbing a stalk of grain and by the end of the service she has like a photocopy replica that she's made and then my um, my aunt Gloris is an she's an artist and an illustrator and she's been doing a lot of work for anthony at living book press and she oh my goodness some people are just like overly talented and gifted and it just seems unfair to the rest of us so my whole childhood my aunt could draw anything she could see she kept the most faithful daily journals where she would write funny quotes about the kids, draw something out of the day. 
that, you know, like she would just sit there and like draw somebody reading a book across the room or she has these pictures that she's drawn of me reading to my kids and my kids have like five legs because every time they change position, she would like just keep adding to the drawing. And so (laughs) it's like me reading to my spider children, but she could draw anything she could see, but she couldn't draw what she could think at all. So Hmm. like four or five years ago, she started training her left hand to draw no because she's right-handed so she she can draw what she can think with her left hand and can draw what she can see with her right and i'm like i'm out i'm out i'm just one person yeah i I know (laughs) i know it's so unfair but yeah so thanks to think and then my grandma painted other people's paintings like i have a van gogh in my house that is by my grandma and so I just I was surrounded by all of this beautiful artwork growing up. And then Gemma, my second daughter, she has just been an artist. She was one of the she's a perfectionist. She's on the spectrum. And she refused to draw when she was little. She wouldn't even color because it wasn't mm-hmm. going to look like what she wanted it to look like. And so she would come and make you draw it. Like I said, like my elephant looks more like a cat <laughs> and a sparrow <laughs> combined or something. But she would she just sat and waited. And the thing with like <laughs> these spectrumy perfectionists is they won't do something until they know they can do it well. So I don't mm. know how magically one day she woke up and could draw finally, but she could like the synapses had connected and wow. she woke up and she just started drawing and she would fill a page from one side to the other with all this tiny detail and all this like little background stuff going on. And She's just this like incredible artist and her grandparents got her art lessons with a local artist one year for Christmas and she went in and the art, the teacher's like, okay, our warm up exercise is we're going to um, think of, you know, something that we want to just draw today. What, what's something that you want to just sketch out for your warm up exercise? So Gemma being just like nervous, she's in a social situation without anybody else to be her like moral support people. And so she just like nervously says the first thing she thinks of. And she's like, a rainbow farting unicorn. And the teacher's like, all right, sounds good. It turned out this was going to be her entire project for like the entirety of the class. So it's this mixed media class. And every week they like add a new layer. So we have this like gorgeous (laughs) painting mixed media thing of a rainbow farting unicorn. Just like a classic. So yeah, so I'm surrounded by all of this art. But my my thing is reading. Like I love to read. I love the emotion. And connecting with the emotion in the book. And I um, had a not peaceful childhood. Mm. And so books were my escape. And they, I, I read, somebody shared in our Facebook group this week, a whole like string of tweets that people had shared about what the library was to them when they were a kid or from librarians. Mm, yeah. And one of them that really struck me was they said that the library is a place that kids can go to, to see what a normal family looks like and what a healthy family looks like. And I feel like that's what books were for me because mm. I could go and I could read a lot. I had a very very high reading words per minute average. And so I would just like devour hundreds of books throughout the year. And I was seeing what healthy looked like. And as an autistic, 
undiagnosed autistic kid who just couldn't figure out why the world did not make sense to me naturally the way it seemed to make to everyone else. I was able to study people and especially people who were writing satire like Jane Austen, like she's mm. making fun of like all these societal things. And I right. loved that because I was like, it really is that crazy. And she sees it too. You know? <laughs> so, but she writes about like why people are doing these things and what their motivations are and what social constraints people have on them that may make them act a way that isn't natural. And so then it was okay for me to realize I have to act this way that isn't natural for the sake of the social constraint, but I can still be myself and I like be secure in who I feel I yeah. am and what is important to me and what isn't important to me outside of these social constraints. And I can even like push and bump against the social constraints a little bit. Like the Bennett sisters all went into society at the same time. Like you can make decisions that are a little bit anti-conventional and the world won't end. Even if you have a couple judgy voices over here that just don't <laughs> shut up. So I just loved reading and I really appreciate all the authors today that are continuing to put good, solid stories out there mm. that can shine a light in the darkness that can, show where the path is and help lead people through hard situations. And my special interest is books that focus on emotional intelligence and helping mm. kids know like what yeah. is a healthy way to process through these emotions? What do these emotions even look and feel like? Because if you don't know what they look and feel like, they can be very panic inducing <laughs> when you feel yeah. them and you're like, I don't know what's going on here. So I really, really appreciate the tales of Havaria. And I'm very much looking forward to the novel. So oh, thank you. I, this is always my thing with living authors. So don't die on me. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about it, but um, I will definitely yeah. <laughs> added reason not Sam's to. Books, like the Green Ember books are, are, I kid you not, the first time in like 20 years that I was willing to start a series that wasn't well, done already. He was churning them out. Because he, of my kids. Out. Yeah. I'm like, come on, man. He's just so discouraging to me because he can like, he, he's just like knocking them out like one or two a year. I'm just like, Sam, come on. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. <laughs> I'll try not to die. Overachievers. He wasn't illustrating them though. So, That's you know. That's true. <laughs> not like an all around athlete. And that's right? what I have to figure out for this novel. So like the novel like is, is, is going to be black and white. It's going to be printed here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so that does leave a challenge um i want to do some line art it's not going to be illustration heavy but to mm -hmm. pull out all illustrations seems um not to be the greatest move unfair either. unfair <laughs> yeah um i just i just need to um have to i have to figure out how i'm how i'm actually going to approach yeah. that i know color book, plates oh, are so really expensive, expensive. hard to oh. do yeah so, all right. Well, thank you so much, Jamin. This was really enjoyable yeah, hearing all welcome. of this. And thank you for sharing your story with us. So in the show notes, we will be including a link to your website where people can buy prints, buy your book. And I believe your show dates are also on there if people want to hit up an art show in their yes, locale. Yes, two, two left, whether it's going to be in left this year. Denver, well, and by the time this comes out, I'll probably yeah. be done because it's probably not yeah. going to come out. <laughs> but next year, like I always look at it and every year, exactly. I'm, like, I'm going to get to Des Moines this year. So one of these years it'll happen. Yeah, a, I swear, like 
we don't have many family events during the year since my grandparents passed and my aunt and uncle moved mm. away. But like every year, your Des Moines show is on like some family event. You were having a child last year. Yeah, I had a baby. Time. Yes, when I had Lily. <laughs> it just keeps pe- keeps being a bad weekend. I just might fly to Denver one of these times and just be like, I'm going to a show. So, all right. So we will we'll add a link to your website so that people can see all your illustrations and what you have going on. And you also host a podcast with mm-hmm. Kira and you guys host that through the rabbit room and talk about art and talk with other artists. If that's something people want to listen to, we'll have a link to that as well. And yeah. any of the books that we mentioned will be in the show notes. And if you guys want to click stars on the episode or leave a comment or a question for Jamin, we can pass it on and maybe he'll come back and answer some questions for us. That would be great. And remember that the stories are truer than true. And if you haven't had a walk yet today, you should go have one. Talk to you later. Bye.